0: Is there a new world order in the background shaping the fate of past empires and their successors? What were the instruments in place that allowed the Portuguese and each successive empire to rise and fall? Did slavery of Africans historically end because of the abolitionist movement or because of the arrival of coal? Have America's early advantages allowing them to succeed the British now shown signs of sliding into the hands of the Chinese? This week on the Global Research News Hour, as the U.S. has lost in Afghanistan and is not doing so well on the world stage generally, we examine the weakening aspects of its empire and the growing fade in its power as now China seems to threaten to be the next big state on the world stage. And we examine this global shift through a historical lens – Joining us for the bulk of the hour, the historian and educator from Madison, Wisconsin, Al McCoy, makes his debut on the show to discuss these issues at the center of his brand new book, To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change. On this week's program, The Collapse of America, Part 1, What History Teaches Us About the Rise and Fall of Empires. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of November 19th, 2021. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojibwe, Dene, and Dakota the birthplace of the Métis Nation, and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are featured on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. This overview of the evolution of the epidemic in these vaccine champion countries, as described by WHO data and John Hopkins University curves, shows that the COVID pseudo vaccines do not protect populations from recurrence of the epidemic, that health Agencies have abandoned the hope of collective immunity through vaccination now qualified as a myth by almost all the agencies that believed in it. That this failure is the consequence of the insufficient efficiency and the much too short duration of the current pseudo-vaccines which do not prevent from being sick nor from transmitting the disease. That many experts think that it is time to learn to live with covid as with the seasonal flu. That comes from the article, Trends in Mortality and Morbidity in the Most Vaccinated Countries, 21 Proven Facts, by Gérard Delépine, posted November 17th, originally published in French at Ca and translated at Global Research. You'd think things would be more transparent. But Aaron Seary discovered someone who convinced their hospital to do something really unusual, track the vaccination status of each admitted patient to the hospital. Tracking was based on whether you got the vaccine or not, not two weeks after you got the vaccine, which is a major definition difference. In short, honest tracking. You'll never guess what happened, so I'll tell you. That comes from the article, Everyone Missed This One, Vaccinated people are up to nine times more likely to be hospitalized than unvaccinated people. By Steve Kirsch, posted November 17th, originally published on Steve Kirsch's newsletter. (music) The spreading global fertilizer crisis will mean sharp reductions in feed corn, wheat, rice, coffee, and other crops in 2022. This hits amid the steepest food price inflation in decades further aggravated by covid measures and disruptions in global shipping trade behind the growing global fertilizer shortage crisis is the fivefold explosion in the price of methane or natural gas as it is usually called this has its origins in deliberate anti-carbon green policies of the Biden administration and of the European Union with its Fit for 55 program to cut CO2 emissions by 55% by 2030, including methane or natural gas. The Biden administration has forced disinvestment in USA shale gas and the forced expansion of highly subsidized green energy, such as wind and solar, have created an unreliable electric grid. That comes from the article, The Organized Takedown of the Global Fertilizer Supply? Global Crisis in Farming and Food Production by F. William Engdahl, posted November 17th, originally published at New Eastern Outlook. With every new court ruling that empowers corporations and the government to use heavy-handed tactics to bring about vaccine compliance, with every new workplace mandate that forces employees to choose between their right to bodily autonomy and economic livelihood, and with every new piece of legislation that insulates corporations and the government from being held accountability for vaccine injuries and deaths, our property interest in our bodies is diminished. At a minimum, our right to individual sovereignty over our lives and our bodies is being usurped by power-hungry authoritarians, greedy self-serving corporations, egotistical nanny staters who think they know what's best for the rest of the populace, and a short-sighted but well-meaning populace which fails to understand the long-term ramifications of trading their essential freedoms for temporary promises of safety and security. We are more vulnerable now than ever before. This debate over bodily autonomy, which covers broad territory ranging from forced vaccinations abortion, and euthanasia to forced blood draws, biometric surveillance, and basic health care has far-reaching ramifications for who gets to decide what happens to our bodies during an encounter with government officials. On a daily basis, Americans are already being made to relinquish the most intimate details of who we are, our biological makeup, our genetic blueprints, and our biometrics, facial characteristics and structure, fingerprints, iris scans, etc. In order to clear the nearly insurmountable hurdle that increasingly defines life in the United States, we are now guilty until proven innocent. That comes from the article, The Road to Fascism Paved with Vaccine Mandates and Corporate Collusion by John W. Whitehead and Nisha Whitehead, Posted November 17th, originally published at the Rutherford Institute. The UDRA Vigilance Database reports that through October 19th, 2021, there are 29,934 deaths and 2,804,900 injuries reported following injections of four experimental COVID-19 shots. COVID-19 mRNA vaccine Moderna, CXO24414, COVID-19 mRNA vaccine Pfizer-BioNTech, COVID-19 vaccine AstraZeneca, C-H-A-D-O-X-1-N-C-O-V-19, COVID-19 vaccine Janssen, ad dot cov2.s from the total of injuries recorded almost half of them or 1,311,861 are serious injuries seriousness provides information on the suspected undesirable effect it can be classified as serious if it corresponds to a medical occurrence that results in death is life-threatening, requires inpatient hospitalization, results in another medically important condition or prolongation of existing hospitalization, results in persistent or significant disability or incapacity, or is a congenital anomaly, birth defect. A Health Impact News subscriber in Europe ran the reports for each of the four COVID-19 shots we are including here. It is a lot of work to tabulate each reaction with injuries and fatalities since there is no place on the UJA vigilance system. We have found that tabulates all the results. That comes from the article, 29,934 deaths, 2,804,900 injuries following COVID shots in European database of adverse reactions. Corporate journalists have Pericarditis after Pfizer shots by Brian Shilhavy, posted November sixteenth. Originally published in Health Impact News. People want permanent protection from the COVID infection disease, but now CDC has taken out the language referring to getting immunity for a specific disease and getting protection from that disease. Now. COVID vaccines do not have to directly produce immunity. No, now they only have to stimulate the body's immune system. You don't get immunity because COVID vaccines do not directly produce immunity. That comes from the article, CDC twisted the definition of vaccine, a lie to make billions of dollars for drug companies, by Joel S. Hersharn, Posted November 17th, originally published on Mark Taliano's website. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. is Michael Welch and the show is the Global Research News Hour. This hour we're going to examine the rise and fall of great empires throughout recent history. We will see some aspects that normally don't get talked about and, and be able to project ahead to the current U.S. empire and uh, with the Chinese empire waiting in the wings. Uh, making a debut on the show is Alfred McCoy. Alfred William McCoy is an American historian and educator. McCoy is currently the Fred Harvey Harrington Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He specializes in the history of the Philippines, foreign policy of the United States, European colonization of Southeast Asia, illegal drug trade, and central intelligence agency covert operations. His books include The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia, CIA Complicity in the Global Drug Trade from 1972, A Question of Torture, CIA Interrogation from the Cold War to the War on Terror in 2006, and In the Shadows of the American Century, The Rise and Decline of U.S. Global Power from 2017, Orders and Catastrophic Change. This is a book that recounts the past order of empires on the planet, and from that predicts the fall of the current U.S. empire and and the rise of a China era. Uh, We'll be focusing our attention on this one work for the duration of the hour. Alfred McCoy, it's wonderful having you on the Global Research News Hour. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us.
1: It's a pleasure. Now,
0: in in your book, uh, you provide a historical context uh, going back five centuries or more, back to the uh, Black Death, Bubonic Plague, with the currently collapsing U.S. empire. I mean, is that history a a context for the, the collapse of the current order?
1: By going back, I learned, by going back 700 years. I surprised myself by learning a great deal. Uh, the trick, of course, is the, the need to, to, con- to continuously link those events in a way that's not stretching the facts and that's making sense. So one thing I learned that of immediate relevance is that every major global, global hegemon uh, since the 15th century has done one thing similarly. They, they, all of them have done the same thing, beginning with the, the Portuguese to the Dutch the British, the Americans, and now the Chinese. All of them have struggled to dominate the vast Eurasian landmass. Uh, and during the Cold War, the United States did this via strategy of alliances and military mobilization. At the western end of the great Eurasian landmass, the US formed in 1949 the NATO alliance, and that gave us military bases. At the eastern end, two years later in 1951, we signed four bilateral mutual defense pacts with Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, and Australia. And from these two axial ends of Eurasia, we dominated that landmass and we linked these, these, these axial ends with layers of steel, uh, uh, naval armadas, air bases, uh, and we dominated Eurasia. And now China is doing the same thing. Uh, and they have a kind of twofold strategy for dominating the original MS. Uh, started in, in 2014, uh, they began using their $4 trillion in accumulated foreign exchange from their, their export boom to launch something called the Belt and Road Initiative. And this is the largest development and foreign aid project in human history. It's 10 times the size of the Marshall Plan that the United States introduced to rebuild a war-torn Europe after World War II. And it's laying down an amazing grid of rail, road, and natural gas pipelines stretching from the Baltic Sea to the South China Sea. Uh, And uh, uh, China is giving loans and developing this infrastructure. And if if this scheme works economically, if it fulfills the vision that President Xi Jinping proclaimed for it in 2013 when he announced it in Kazakhstan, then as if by natural law, trade, commerce and power will flow across the Eurasian landmass to, to China. And the other thing that China's doing is that it's systematically attempting to break those rings of steel that the United States still has lying around uh, the rim of Eurasia. And it's doing it in a, in a twofold strategy. First of all, it's ma- conducting a massive modernization of its military, naval, missiles, land forces, but particularly missiles and Navy. And it is constructed in the South China Sea, uh, a, a network of seven military bases, and through aggressive patrols of air and sea, it's trying to push the United States out of what it calls the first island chain. We call that the Pacific littoral, That's that string of island bases from Japan through Okinawa, Taiwan, the Philippines, down to Australia. China's trying to push us beyond the first island chain all the way to the middle middle of the Pacific. And then China is building uh, and acquiring ports in Pakistan, uh, Sri Lanka, uh, and uh, on the Horn of Africa, and uh, is beginning to push into the Indian Ocean. Uh, And so through these two means, uh, China is through commerce and through military operations, simultaneously breaking US dominance over the vast Eurasian landmass. And second is laying down this grid of of commerce uh, in order to dominate Eurasia economically. And just so we understand this, Eurasia, Europe and Asia combined, is the home to 70% of the world's population and 70% of the world's productivity. this is an enormously ambitious project.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you said it was something like uh, they're spending like 10 times what uh, was spent on the Marshall Plan. And I, I'm wondering if this, when this uh, laying down the infrastructure started, uh, like since then, uh, is that roughly the equivalent of what the United States has been spending on wars uh, from one country to another?
1: Uh, well, the, the, the cost of direct to China in terms of loans and, and aid of the Belt and Road Initiative when it's all done by roughly 2025 or 2027 <clears throat> will be about $1.2 trillion. Uh, the cost of the US war in Afghanistan just by itself was about $2.2 trillion. So if you if you wanna you know, put it in very simple terms, um, since 2001, you know, since 9-11, uh, What has China done? China joined the World Trade Organization uh, through a misguided perception by the United States. Nonetheless, we let them into the world economy. And uh, between 2001 and 2014, they turned themselves into the world's workshop. We all know all of the incredible array of manufactured goods, uh, both ordinary consumer items and very sophisticated electronics that now come out of China. And so by 2014, China had acquired $4 trillion in foreign exchange reserves. And during the same period, the United States was fighting those two disastrous wars in the greater Middle East, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And estimates on the cost of those wars, one estimate is about $5 trillion. Another estimate is as high as $8 trillion, okay? And so what did China get for its $4 trillion? China got close economic links and a massive infrastructure reaching across the whole of Eurasian, extending down into Africa as well, which is a part of a China's, what we call world island strategy. China's also incorporating into this tri-continental landmass, okay? And, and what did the United States get for its $8 trillion? Um, we have veterans benefits we're gonna be paying to the end of the century. Uh, and what we're doing, the, the, the whole point of our involvement in, in the Middle East from a strategic perspective was to secure absolutely control over the oil of the Middle East. In effect, we were spending $8 trillion to acquire control over a commodity oil just at the point that it was joining cordwood and coal as a superseded form of power that had to be erased. And yes, there'll be short-term profits from oil, but even medium-term, you know, investing in oil is kind of like investing in coal or maybe even cordwood strategically a a terrible decision. And 10 or 15 years from now, when people write the history of the the long gone, much mourned U.S. empire, when they look back at the strategic stakes the United States made, one would be admitting China into the World Trade Organization as an economic equal and the idea that it would be a friendly uh, society, friendly with America, moving towards democracy, joining the international order on our terms, that was mistake one. And the other mistake would be simultaneously plunging into those wars in the Middle East and and trying to secure the oil just at the time that oil was disappearing as a prime commodity. Wow. Uh,
0: Going back to your book, I mean, one thing you point to is that as these empires rise uh, and are dominant for time and they fall, however, there's also a world order, uh, an uh, an order of ethics that is larger than the empires themselves and, and that uh, continue on even beyond the empires, uh, but, but they also change with each the successive country that, that takes over or threatens to succeed. Uh, I was wondering, was this something that you always knew or, or is it one of the fresh insights that maybe you came across as you wrote the book?
1: It's probably the prime insight that I had when I wrote the book. Uh, since the 15th century, when European exploration brought the continents into close continuous for the first time in world history. From that time when we could actually speak of a a human community as a unit, right? Not as isolated separate societies. There have been about 90 empires, large and small, that have come and gone. But there have only been three world orders, the Iberian, Spain and Portugal, uh, which lasted for about 300 years uh, up to about 1805, And then the British world order, the age of empire, that lasted roughly from 1815 to 1914, the start of World War I. And then a transition period, and uh, during and after World War II, the US uh, world order arose. Now, each of these world orders has been marked by a duality between power and principle. In the case of the Iberians, when they came to the Americas, they enslaved and slaughtered the indigenous population, and so their their violations of human rights were beyond imagining, horrible. At the same time, a number of key Dominicans, famously Bartolomé de las Casas, Antonio de Montesinos, Francisco de Vitoria, you know, uh, they they observed this these these abuses, these horrors. In the case of Bartolomé de las Casas, he was a he was a Spanish settler, right? The start of this process, and saw it. He witnessed firsthand the slaughters uh, in Hispaniola and Cuba, and uh, he devoted his life to trying to end these. and And through this, the the work of these of these Dominican friars, we began to get a recognition of the concept of human rights. So, Spain's world order, Spain and Portugal's world order, created gross violations of human rights, and yet created the very concept of it. Uh, of the idea of universal human rights. Um, The British world order that succeeded it, again, at the level of principle, uh, at the very start of the world order, they committed themselves to the extirpation of what they regarded as one of the great monstrosities of human history, which of course they dominated in the 18th century, the slave trade. And the British Navy uh, spent 80 years, 2% of the gross national income of Great Britain in a systematic campaign to extirpate slavery. And more than any other single force any other single power, they they were critical in ending the slave trade and indeed ending slavery more generally. Uh, the Middle Passage, the Royal Navy lost fifteen thousand sailors, you know, destroying the Middle Passage, you know, fighting and 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 uh, and seizing slavers in the high seas. At the same time, on the on the power side of that duality, Britain was building a global colonial empire that required coerced unpaid labor of up to 20 or 30 days from its colonial subjects. So it also transgressed against human rights. Now, the United States at the level of power and principle, we continued this kind of discourse of human rights in drafting the charter for the United Nations and more importantly, three years later in 1948, drafting and fighting for the approval of the UN universal declaration of human rights we stated as a point of principle that race that 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 racism was was an abomination, and should be extirpated. That colonial dominion should be should be extirpated, uh, and and so you know. And we built a series of international organizations: the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the World Health Organization, and literally hundreds of other like organizations. That has woven a web of global governance that has limited the impact of pandemic disease, prevented major global wars, promoted development, uh, ended extreme poverty for much of humanity. Okay, so that's, that's the, the principal side, right? That's the U.S. world order. Now on the power side, of course, uh, the United States was not only the architect of world order, but it was also the most powerful empire in human history. And in the exercise of that power, we violated every single one of those principles. We promoted torture among our allies, arguably the greatest abomination, apart from slavery, uh, of human rights. Uh, and at the same time, we were in the UN Charter promoting uh, inviolable sovereignty for all nations. Uh, we were, through CIA covert operations and occasional military interventions, violating that same sovereignty that we were enshrined. So we were the an imperfect global citizen in the world order that we created. But nonetheless, the world order has acquired power, institutional strength above and beyond us. And now what we're facing at this moment and between, you know, now and the end of this decade, as U.S. global hegemony fades and China arises as potentially the successor global hegemon, The question is, what's going to happen to this American world order, the the UN, the World Health Organization, the World Bank, all of these organizations, Uh, and and particularly the the fabric of international law that stitches them all together. Um, And it's apparent that Beijing, being the first global hegemon that's arisen outside this fraught continuity from of European powers, you know, Spain to Portugal, to Holland, to Britain, to the U.S., China is outside that dialogue, and it appears that the the, the Communist Party leadership in China doesn't have a great deal of respect for human rights, and more importantly, uh, based upon the case that they lost before the uh, permanent court of arbitration in the Hague, when the Philippines sued them for violating Philippine territorial waters, the 200-mile uh, exclusive zone that the Philippines has uh, uh, at the edge of the Spratly Islands in the South China Sea, China lost that case hands down on a unanimous uh, judgment and then just simply waved away uh, the judgment as having no value whatsoever and waved it away so resolutely, so, so thoroughly that it's clear that China really has no respect for or no any interest in the whole fabric of international law that undergirds the current U.S. world order. So it's not just a shift in global hegemons, you know, America down, China up. But it looks like China is going to bring about a much more transactional, kind of amoral global order that will shred the fabric of human rights, the idea of promoting democracy as the ideal form of governance in societies, uh, and the... Rule of law that undergirds these both.
0: You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. In case you just joined us, we're listening to Al McCoy, uh, the Fred Harvey Harrington Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin Madison, uh, and he's just authored uh, the new book to govern the globe, world orders and catastrophic change. Um, Al McCoy, uh, maybe you could just start to help us understand, uh, you, you started with the Bi- Iberian Empire and, and it, it just come off of the Black Plague, the Bubonic Plague uh, uh, in the background. You know, their, their ships were were the first to, to, to explore the Far East and the New World. Could you just outline the, the basis of, of gaining an empire. I mean, how, can you explain exactly how, what selected Portugal and Spain to thrive the most?
1: Well, it was really Portugal, you know, uh, and probably the, in a certain sense, one of the oldest nations in Europe and also arguably the poorest. Um, uh, their sea coast uh, didn't have the forests that's needed for the construction of ships. They had a light population, they had poor rainfall, so it was one of the, in terms of natural resources, one of the poorest regions of Europe. But they were well sited uh, at this kind of juncture between European Christian civilization and Muslim uh, civilizations. And they benefited from uh, advances in uh, Muslim mathematics and uh, astronomy and navigation, and also in ship design. And so if you will, the, the Portuguese constructed two artifacts of significance. Uh, In the 15th century, they developed a new kind of sailing ship called the Caravella da Armada, the the armed caravel. And what was distinct about this ship, uh, they were about 50 tons, very small, um, uh, that they had triangular sails. Uh, Sails up to this point had been rectangular. And they're only good for sailing before the wind. In other words, if if the wind's at the stern and it blows you straight down across the seas, you're good. But supposing you want to want to navigate into the winds, all right? Uh, and you have to tack. Tacking with a rectangular sail is extraordinarily difficult, very inefficient. The triangular sail allows you to, to actually tack. It makes you the master of the winds and the seas. The other thing that Carvalho del Mar had was the Portuguese were the first to develop sophisticated shipborne artillery, uh, you know, rows of guns, so they could fire broadside. So that meant that they could stand offshore. Uh, more populous, fortified Asian cities and they could shell the, the city walls, make a breach and then storm ashore. Um, and they could then, when faced with more numerous, as they often were, more numerous Asian armadas, uh, they could sail through them guns blazing and sink the ships um, without having uh, to engage in the, the costly uh, uh, hand-to-hand fighting aboard, aboard, aboard ship. Uh, the other key artifact of Portuguese civilization, and this is very important in terms of human history, was in Madeira and then São Tomé, the small islands off the coast of Africa in the Atlantic Ocean. The Portuguese experimented with the sugar plantation and they created, the Portuguese word is fazenda, they created the, the modern form of plantation, uh, 150 to 300 acres of land, 100 to 300 slaves, stone mills to crush the sugar, uh, iron cauldrons to boil the sugars kind of juice into into crystals, brown crystals. Uh, And this form of tropical agriculture, the the slave sugar plantation, was so incredibly profitable because human beings have a natural taste for sugar uh, that it spread across the Atlantic along the coast of Brazil and then into the Caribbean. And it was the sugar plantation more than any other artifact that created the demand for for the slave trade. And this form of agriculture was unique in that it was profitable, you know, from the 15th century all the way to the 19th and into the 20th century. Uh, And so Unlike most forms of economic activity that die of what you might say natural economic causes, the the product or the service is superseded, this form of activity didn't. It remained highly profitable uh, all the way to the very end. So it had to be destroyed by force. Hence, the role of the British Navy. uh, And the United States had to fight a civil war with 750,000 deaths to extirpate, in this case, the cotton plantation in the United States. so that was and that, the one thing that you, that, that you learn from this is that that what the Portuguese and then what the Dutch did was they maximized two forms of energy. If you think about it, what the what the, the, the Caravel de Armada was doing with its triangular sails was maximizing wind power for propulsion across the seas. Okay. And then if you think about what the Fazenda, the slave plantation, was doing, it was maximizing the the yield from human labor, okay? Think about it. A European yeoman farmer, because after the Black Death, farming was individual in Europe, okay? The big manors broke up. There was no population to sustain them. And that meant that a yeoman farmer in a temperate climate can work only six months a year. But in the tropics, you can work 12 months a year. A yeoman farmer, well, uh, employing him, him and herself, uh, will we'll manage their labor during the day. You know they know their peak work time, so they'll ramp up, work hard for a few hours, take a break, etc. Slave plantations—they were worked with whip and club, you know, continuously for twelve to fifteen hours a day. Uh, the average life of a slave on a an Iberian plantation was about six years. So they were literally worked to death. They were worked twelve months a year, six days a week. 12 to 15 hours a day at a constant coerced level of productivity. And this maximized the energy output of the human body and allowed these exceptional profits. So what killed the slave plantation? Well, two things, and and they're coincidental. Britain did two things. Uh, One, the very powerful British Navy we all know about, that gave them the raw power to dominate the Atlantic Ocean and the Indian and end the slave trade. But Britain was doing something else. Britain's rise to power coincided with its discovery of the steam engine, not only the big steam engines developed in the 1780s by James Watt, but later small mobile steam engines that could be put aboard trains and ships and and power factories. And then on sugar plantations, those boiling cauldrons uh, and the crude fire and the work by the slaves gave way to six to 12 horsepower steam engines that did the crushing and the extraction of the juice from the cane. And in countless industries, okay, steam rollers, steam shovels, steam dredges, okay, uh, you know, steam energy replaced human muscle power, rendering it redundant. So in effect, Britain's mastery of steam power, all right, freed it from the need to have slavery. So Britain's extirpation of slavery and its steam power went simultaneously, and of course, you know, the emissions started. And what most people are unaware is that the first serious report on global warming wasn't 1970 or 1990, at one at Rio. It was actually 1896, when a man named Cervante Arrhenius, who won the Nobel Prize for physics. Sat there with pencil and paper, working for months, did complex calculations, and he worked out in 1896 that if CO2 emissions from industry kept going, that by his calculation the average temperature in the Arctic would rise by nine degrees centigrade, and and in fact that's what we're facing.
0: Wow! And I we've known this since
1: 1896, and this was published in a major journal in Edinburgh, Scotland
0: yeah um, I know that uh, the, 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 the coal industry effectively uh, made slavery uh, inadequate. I mean there was an anti-abolitionist movement at the same time, but uh, you know you, you have this, uh, these alternative forms that are more powerful, and so that kind of phased it out. However, um, you, you note as well that in, in the, you know, going into the, the late 1800s, there was um, an application of Darwin's principles. And the, the the British, among others, kind of capitalized on it, and the result was a massive, um, basically slaughter of, of the entire African continent. Uh, you know, as they they moved in, I mean, they used their new weaponry to just slaughter people. Uh, in fact, I think you even pointed out that uh, one of the uh, the tribes uh, they uh, they they subjected them to uh, the, uh, one of these. Uh, things like concentration camps where they killed them. And so that was kind of like a, a prelude to, what, to ha- what happened under Germany in, in the 1900s. Yeah, I mean, uh, so basically what, what I'm saying is that you have, you, you, they, they ended slavery, but in a sense, the, the racism continued in another form, which was in this case, a, a kind of a scientific uh, understanding that they translated incorrectly as uh, justifying this kind of imperialism, if I'm correct.
1: Yeah, Uh, first of all, the the conquest of Africa, which was uh, unrestrained violence, um, whenever the Europeans met force, um, uh, they would apply uh, uh, limitless military power. Um, uh, Probably the the worst was German Southwest Africa, which is now Namibia, in which the uh, German commanders after 1900 in order to passed by the population expropriate their land for German settlers, uh, uh, set out to extirpate, to to destroy, to wipe out two major tribes or ethnic groups in that area. And the argument has been made by historians that the German experience after 1900 in Namibia uh, of extirpation, and by the way, the German commanders stated explicitly that that was their aim, the the complete elimination of these peoples, uh, that that was the the basis uh, for the Holocaust. That was the first attempt by the German people to wipe out an entire ethnic group. Uh, uh, But another, in terms of long-term exploitation of Africa, what the Europeans introduced was the idea of what's called corvée labor. That for people that are living in subsistence communities, not engaging in cash transactions, they don't have the cash to pay regular taxes. And so all states, including colonial states, need to extract tax revenue from their subjects or citizens. So what they came with the idea was unpaid coerced labor. Uh, and um, in, in uh, the Congo Free State, which was one of the greatest atrocities in the European conquest of Africa, uh, the uh, the government of Leopold II of, the, of Belgium imposed 26 days, of unpaid coerced labor. When you think about that, you know that's an entire month of a farmer's working life. And anybody who's worked on a farm knows that every minute of every day, every working day is, is critically important uh, for you know, the planting, sowing, for, for maintenance, for doing all the things it takes to on a farm. Well, farmers were pulled out of that and put in this unpaid coerced labor. Uh, and this spread across Africa So the Portuguese in Angola, they had the same requirement. The French had lesser, the British had lesser. It also spread to Asia. The other thing that replaced the slave trade was contract labor, indentured labor. So what you got is massive migration of Chinese uh, to the South Pacific, to the Caribbean, to Southeast Asia, and you got a mass migration of Indians to Africa. Chinese to America, uh, and so you got the, these movements of millions of Chinese and Indians around the world as contract laborers, often on plantations, sometimes in infrastructure projects. And the combination of these two phenomena of coerced labor and contract labor was a kind of substitute, a transitional form of labor, before the the technology of steam and machinery fully replaced uh, much of manual labor.
0: Another factor is the idea of, of taking on a battle that was larger than the imperialist could handle. I mean, you had you know, the Iberians, uh, you know, with spending on, on the silver, had, uh, you know, they, they didn't have enough to fight a, a particularly intense battle with the Danes and the Britons. Uh, in, in Britain, uh, World War II seems to have been the, the, the beginning of the end of the British empire. Uh, and, you know, finally seeing a a final farewell uh, at the time of the Suez Canal. I'm wondering, in in terms of the United States, what battle would you say uh, really marked the beginning of the end of of the United States Empire, Uh, you know, come from this time, well, up to this point?
1: Sure, Michael. Um, One thing I argue in the book is that the world orders – and, and let me just explain a little bit what they are, okay? They, they don't have the territorial strength and the legal grounding of a conventional uh, nation state or even an empire, okay? And yet they're more pervasive and more resilient. World orders influence the, the languages people speak, uh, often the way they worship, the way that they, they work and, and even play. The games that people play. I mean, Britain during its period introduced all kinds of sport: uh, rugby, cricket, uh, uh, rowing, uh, golf, tennis. Okay. Uh, in our era, we we uh, the great American invention, the great game of basketball. We proliferated that, that around the planet, um, uh, made the NBA a global phenomenon. So, so these world orders are, are pervasive. They embed themselves and they define entire civilizations. And thus it takes an extraordinary event, uh, plague, cataclysm, war to uproot them. And so you're right, the British World Order came to an end during World War II because all the European empires, the six European empires that ruled over roughly a third of humanity, were either exhausted by their victory or drained by their defeat in this great European bloodletting of World War II. Moreover, the idea of nationhood had proliferated around the globe. And there was an idea that's enshrined in the UN charter that that every people should be living in a sovereign state with inviolable borders. uh, uh, um, and, And this proliferated and so decolonization took place very rapidly in the two decades after World War II and became synonymous, if you will, with the American world order. So what is it that's going to uproot this deeply embedded American world order? And it's going to be, I think, a conjuncture, as it usually is, of two things. Some long-term change and some more immediate geopolitical shift. So the immediate geopolitical shift we've been talking about that's the transition from US global hegemony to Chinese hegemony. And you asked, what's the, the big defeat? What's the big strategic miscalculation? What's the battle that Amer- or the war that America lost? Well, it wasn't really so much a war that we lost. It was a decision that Washington made. Back in 2001, there was this bipartisan decision to admit China into the World Trade Organization to allow them to join the global economy as an equal. And there was an assumption that everybody in Washington, both parties now admit, was a a, a gross strategic miscalculation. And the idea was that, um, as John Mearsheimer, a historian has put it in a recent essay, that China would join uh, the world order and become a, 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 a promising democracy and a kind of good citizen in the international community on our terms. And this turned out to be completely fallacious because once 20% of humanity joined the world order, they very quickly began to break out of our rules and began to set their own rules and began to design a world order that better fit their needs, their vision of their role as a, as a global hegemon. So that was the, the big mistake we made. And by the way, you know all of the, the tensions that have come from deindustrialization de- 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 in the United States, as steel mills and furniture factories and uh, have begun, and various kinds of low end manufacturing have closed across America and rural communities have gotten hollowed out. Well, the same thing happened in Europe and you, what we've seen is the rise of this angry working class based populism that uh, accounts for the, the British Brexit, uh, the ultranationalism nationalism in Europe, the rise and election of Donald Trump and the particular way that he made the Republican Party. Okay, this all proceeds from from this, this this globalization and this deindustrialization of Europe and the United States in favor of China. So that's that's the big mistake we made. Now, the other part, where's the the cataclysm? That's climate change, right? Uh, climate change is building very very quickly, um, and um, <clears throat> By 2050, which is just 30 years from now, by 2050, the World Bank uh, and international organizations estimate that there will be between 200 million and 1.2 billion climate change refugees. What this means is that those millions of the world's poor that are living at the edge of the desert, on the floodplain, at the edge of the, the battered shore, that as the climate changes and the, the desert extends into poor rural communities, let's say south of the Sahel, the Sahara Afri- uh, desert in Africa, as people in Bangladesh on the fragile seacoast find themselves underwater or battered by storms, et cetera, those people are up to more than 200 million are gonna be in motion. And that is going to prove enormously disruptive to this entire US world order of international organizations, all grounded on the foundational principle of international cooperation. Um, and, and let's remember what we was just talking about. Between 2015, 16, and 2018, you know, that that, that upsurge of populism was driven by two forces. One, the de- deindustrialization, but the kind of precipitating factor was the arrival of, of immigrants at the southern border of the European Union and the southern border of the United States. All right. And that precipitated this angry hyper-nationalism come racism. You know, the, the British exit Brexit from the, the European Union, the hyper-nationalism, all the right-wing parties emerging in Europe, the election of Donald Trump. That was caused by the movement of just two million refugees. When you add up all the people that were crossing the Mediterranean from Africa, that were crossing from Turkey into Greece from the Middle East, from the people from Central America and Mexico coming to the US border, you add them all up, that's only two million people in that period from 1916 to 1918. Well, what is going to happen to the world order when it's 200 million to 1.2 billion people that are moving desperate to survive? It's not a choice on their part. They are going to have to move. They will be unable to survive in the places where they now live. Yeah. And so that is going to batter this international cooperation. Okay. And it's not just going to happen sort of like overnight in 2050. It's accumulating right now. We can already see the signs of it. You know, the storms hitting, uh, the flooding in Germany, the California wildfires uh, two years ago, the, the the fires in Australia, the fires in Africa, the. The aridification of the Amazon rainforest, turning it from lush tropical forests into savanna. I mean, all of that is happening very rapidly. And this is going to accelerate. and, And this is going to hammer the world order. And the combination of that geopolitical shift that from U.S. to China and climate crisis are going to create a conjuncture of forces that are going to eradicate this entire world order that we've been living in for the last 70 years.
0: Okay, I've only got a couple of minutes left, but I would like to ask you one more question if I could. Um, You know, China China clearly seems poised to take over where the US is in decline. However, like one small difference between past eras and the current one is that we are so powerful that we could destroy the planet in climate change, certainly, but also other things, I mean, nuclear weapons and uh, nanotechnology, ultraviolet radiation and so on. But we're in the midst of a great extinction. And so, even if China succeeds the U.S., it wouldn't last terribly long. Uh, so, so fundamental things have to be rethought. And I don't know if our species is capable of that. Is this the ultimate test of that that last leap of ethics, uh, as you say? That, or, or, are we stuck in these old patterns?
1: Yeah, let me uh, answer your question in two parts. Okay, so let's assume that around 2030, that the that China replaces or supersedes the United States as global hegemon. And they begin to reduce their kind of more transactional, amoral global system, fine. Okay, so how long will Chinese global hegemony last? I think it's gonna be very short-lived. Why? Because by 2050, there's an article in Nature Communications that argues that the calculations on, uh, on rising sea levels and, and, and coastal cities have been erroneous and they've now done recalculations that determines that by 2050, much of Shanghai, a city of nearly 18 million people, will be underwater, permanently underwater. Shanghai was dredged from swamp and sea back in the 15th century, and to the, to the sea, it is going to return. And that will mean that China's greatest city, its greatest economic engine, will be in incredible trouble. The other thing is global warming. Uh, That's just not a a word. In the North China Plain, now home to 400 million people, uh, uh, one of the major centers of population, agriculture and industry in China. By 2070, the North China Plain is gonna become one of the hottest and least inhabitable places on the planet. And uh, there's a study out of MIT that says that starting around 2060, 2070, China is going to face hundreds of very extreme weather events, culminating in at least five periods of what's called a wet bulb temperature of 35 degrees centigrade. And what does that mean? Okay. When the balance of heat and humidity hits a wet bulb temperature of 35 degrees centigrade, a human body is unable to sweat, which is the basic cooling mechanism. And so a human, a healthy human being, just sitting at rest, will be dead in six hours under a wet bulb temperature of 35 degrees. And the North China Plain is going to have this entire area experiencing major periods, uh, hundreds of extreme weather events, and then these these killer heat waves, literally killer heat waves. So in in essence, now China's global hegemony is going to be very short-lived. Now, the question is, what the next party question, do we as human beings have a sense to do something? Well, that's where I think that in the midst of this crisis, you know, to be the most optimistic we can, the international community, the human community may realize that we need a new form of global governance, not beyond the amorphous voluntary organizations we have now. And this form of global governance would have to do three critical things. One, if nations haven't switched to non-emitting alternative energy, they have to do it. They, they're mandated to do it, okay? Second, there needs to be an empowered form like the UN High Commissioner of Refugees that can say that these 200 million to billion human beings on the move, okay, that they are going to be resettled. Everybody is going, every temperate nation, every nation that's a home to humanity takes a portion of this human tide. And the third thing, a a systematic transfer of resources from the still vital functioning temperate climate societies to the tropical regions to help them to adapt, to survive, and accommodate climate change. Okay. And if that world order emerges, let's say, in the middle part of this century, then humanity has a chance. Okay.
0: You're a, a fantastic uh, historian and scholar, Al McCoy. I, I want to thank you so much for sharing your thoughts about the book and I hope it does really well uh, on, on, now that it's out uh, fresh off the press. Thank you so much for joining us, Al McCoy.
1: Thank you, Michael, a pleasure. Thank you for the conversation. We've
0: been speaking with Al McCoy, Fred Harvey Harrington, Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and author of the new book, To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change. He joined us from Madison, Wisconsin. That concludes part one of our examination of the collapse of the U.S. Empire. Part two will feature an interview with Andrei Martyanov. Born in the USSR and now living in the United States, this man is an expert on Russian military and naval issues. He recently authored the book Disintegration, Indicators of the Coming American Collapse. Be sure to tune in next week. Listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Creek, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Metis Nation and the heart of the Metis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca.